welcome to the Theology Podcast. If this is your first time uh, tuning into the show, welcome. If you're a long-time listener, great to have you back. But if this is a first time uh, for you, we will do you the favor of introducing ourselves. My name is C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I've been a college professor of philosophy. I've been a real estate investor and um, done some other things, too, and written some books. But enough about me. Why don't we go to you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine, and I'm a retired Reformation historian from Central Connecticut State University, currently Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. All right. Well, uh, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself and then tell us what we're talking about today. Um, Tom Price. Uh, I have a interesting yellow glow due to the the, <laughs> the shade beside me. I'm not normally this glowy. <laughs> it's it's not uh, it's it's not from being in the divine presence any you know in in the Moses kind of level. Um, though I wish it was. Um, I teach systematic theology, uh, Christian thought, philosophy, and Christian ethics. And Gordon Conwell uh, Theological Seminary is one of the places I teach. Yeah. Okay. What are we talking about? Well, it's a, it's a topic that I think is something that is worth visiting and revisiting and uh, visiting again, especially in light of the challenges we have as, as Christians, especially in, in the West, but really it could be anywhere. Um, and that has to do with the way in which uh, truth-telling, being people of the truth, um, speaking the truth, um, sharing the truth, um, you know, uh, contending for the truth, um, how we, we do such things in light of the distinct challenges we face um, where there is opposition to that, um, both on the spiritual level, but increasingly also in the, the public arena in which that spiritual um, challenge and war seems to increasingly be being taken, taken into a deeper and deeper conflict. Right. So what, we're, what you're saying, then, at least what I'm hearing you say, it's not just that we have a particular thing that to say that's true uh the problem uh is more i guess i guess significant in the sense that we are trying to proclaim the truth to people who don't even believe that truth is something that can be known or it maybe it doesn't even exist that's right and what what older philosophers and theologians would call ontological truth um, and what is ontological truth? Well, truth, of course, has to do with, uh, well, ontology has to do with being, right? And classically, um, especially classic Christianity, but also classic philosophy um, tended to hold that being and truth are interconnected, um, are in some, some sense one and the same. For example, there was an old uh, Latin tag that in the Middle Ages that would be used, omni ens est verum, right? All that is real is true, and that for theologians, things that have any reality whatsoever have a truth about them, something that it's the most noble aspect about something, um, that which inheres in it as the distinct kind of thing it is. So to know truth is to, to know something about that noblest thing um, about any kind of reality, and it's that one's perception of that accords with it. Right. So if I uh, um, or, or am perceiving the particular cat that's on the table right now, um, there is something true about that reality that I am capturing. And so when I talk and speak, 
uh, a connection, if I'm speaking truthfully, there is some kind of connection between that reality, my thought about the reality, and the language used to make make that bridge. Um, uh, and the fact so, that you used the fact that you used a cat to illustrate this is uh, <laughs> marvelous. Because uh, is the cat on the mat? That's one of the things. Uh, and then, of course, there's the the mysterious box. Is the cat in the box? Is the cat not in the box? Like, anyway, uh, people can look those up, but. <laughs> anyway, this, yeah. this this is the cat on the table. This is Tom's own take on the cat problem. And, and on a and, and no lying on a pizza box that we save because my cat <laughs> loves it, and that's his throne on the table. But that's that's another show, another time, another story. <laughs> uh, but um, so this is that was a classical view, and of course we've told the story over different episodes about how this view starts to to change. Um, but let, let's bring it down into kind of. Uh, you know, a, a, a series of situations that we've confronted here in the States in, in their political realm, um, you know, over some generations. Let's go back to the Nixon years. Ooh. Um, and we remember, of course, Nixon got into a little trouble. Um, but one of the things that complicated uh, Nixon's presidency was the fact that he came out and lied to cover up that trouble. And so telling a lie um, saying something that didn't accord with reality um, had ramifications and significant ones um, to the point that, you know, I, w- I was little at the time, but I remember my mom stirred up by um, him re- having oh, yeah. to resign. Yeah, but then take it, a f- yep, take it a few years later and you have uh, William Jefferson Clinton um, and uh, someone else who tried to cover up a little mess that he got into and comes out and deliberately lies. And of course, there is a bit of a stir and there is a lot of, um, you know, critiquing of him being dishonest. But eventually you see a little bit of impeachment, but no need to pressure to resign, right? There's a changing attitude towards people of significance being able to speak lies um, and again, maybe maybe they would see this as something a little bit different than the Nixon case because it had to do more with their kind of personal relational um, dimensions versus spying on, you know, their opponent. Yeah, I remember I remember uh, that very argument coming up. Uh, and in fact, I, I remember some people on the left um, claiming or pr- proposing that we had achieved a new kind of sophistication in the, in the United States. Uh, we're, we're actually kind of like the French now. You know, you can have a, a, a political figure who's uh, just, um, you know, rotten to the core at a personal level, but is, is still able to govern well. Um, and so we need to put up with that mess. So, yeah, that's kind of the way we are today. And yeah, I actually remember this is literally the case. I remember a French politician saying something to the effect of once Clinton got a green light, if he didn't take advantage of it, that would have been the impeachable offense. <laughs> <laughs> got it, got it, right, right. Well, and interesting, if you remember, during this, there was at least something of the old classical debate, although it had been moved to the language of legal, legal, you know, uh, back and forth. And he said, you know, when challenged whether or not he lied, he said, well, it you know, depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right? But, but if you <laughs> notice, there is an ontological 
there's an ontological point in the classic way of talking about anything that is a reality. And so he is asking yeah. a, a very important question. It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. <laughs> Which is one of the things that separates various traditions within Christianity when it comes to the Lord's Supper. What is, is. Is, that's right. <laughs> this is, is my body. What, what does that mean? What does that mean? And so this right. this metaphysical, this haunting of the metaphysical um, that, that uh, continues to make it, it itself known in these debates and conversations. Well, let's kind of bring it to the you know present where we now have um, a, a sort of social abandonment you know of, of ontological truth, um, the socially constructed and the socially constructed by those whose voices have somehow been left out seems to now be given this status of, of what should be considered, true and right and correct. It hasn't been tainted with the same civilizational, um, you know, dest destructiveness that those who had power. Yet the people in power are the ones kind of yielding this to their own advantage. But one of the things you'll notice is we can daily be told things that can be shown to be false and not correspond with reality. And yet there's no consequence anymore or that much politically and then we're seeing this increased recognition that anything that challenges with any alternative facts or interpretations of these is considered now to be what is untrue or they use language like disinformation misinformation right so now we have this uh, I don't know what what you'd say, but a very kooky character um, that has been now hired by our government to basically uh, to um, put a limit on disinformation. <laughs> yeah, the, the new uh, censorship czar. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and but here we go. Uh, what we what we have going on in this this kind of uh, mix is something really that is fundamental, and that is ontological truth, um, our relationship to it, and then really the way in which power um, manipulates, alters um, this language because they know that it is compelling for a lot of people, something to be real and true and to correspond to the way things are. And yet they, they also work within a frame in which they really don't believe that it does correspond to reality. But they play with that fact and act as though they're on the side of the truth, even if they can lie to your face and you know it day in, day out, because you can't do anything about it because they have power and you don't. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to reflect on this here uh, just briefly, uh, Tom, because this is something I've thought about just again and again. And it's the, it's the fact that uh, we kind of live in the afterglow of uh, a you know, civilization that believed in ontological truth, but none of the elites believe in it any longer. And they, but they use this sort of uh, residue or afterglow to their advantage, but eventually it's no longer going to serve them. And, yes. uh, you know, we'll find ourselves self in a situation and in there, and they've opened the door to this. They, I think that they, they kind of got a little whiff of what could be in store for them when Trump won, because Trump's, you know, uh, reputation as a kind of, uh, you know, sort of a, a lying, you know, uh, business guy from New York City 
uh, yeah. was something he couldn't shake, even though he started a social network called Truth. <laughs> but everyone's but, after um, it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's right. And you know, I've got mixed feelings about the former president, uh, and uh, you know, just you know, put my my own cards on the table. I voted for him uh, twice, <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't because I didn't think or it wasn't because I believed everything he said. Uh, it really did come down to the lesser of two evils, so to speak, uh, or the lesser of the of two weevils, <laughs> if you remember that uh, that, yeah. that film scene. <laughs> but anyway, um, what, what you got, though, it, but what, what the what the left saw in kind of the in the headlights down the road was the prospect that they have opened the door to another Hitler. I'm not saying that Trump was was that, but they don't really have any way to keep that from occurring um, yeah. because they've undermined the very the very means by which you would uh, keep the door shut or yeah. they broke down the door. I should keep get my metaphors straight. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think what they in, in likewise, I think the threat that he posed was he wasn't inside their club and they were taking advantage of people and lying to people. And uh, when he puts a little stopgap in that, it cut, cuts off the flow of their advantages. He becomes, uh, in their mind, something they can use every kind of, um, you know, any kind of category that is negative to say about him because the way that language works, you know, um, and, and the way he kind of played into it. He was a playboy all these years. He said very crass things about women. All of a sudden, he can be labeled with "this is a person who thinks this way about women." So, it you know they they were they didn't have to fight too hard with a figure like Trump in order to make some of that stuff stick, um, and they just kind of ignore completely. Tom, yeah, what I found particularly galling in all of this is uh, Trump's got the morals of an alley cat. Okay, but let's let's just be clear, yeah. but. What about Biden? Yeah, yeah. There have been right, credible right. claims of sexual assault against yeah, Biden, yeah, at right, least yeah, as right. serious as the stuff you see with Trump, yeah. and far better documented than the stuff that they accused Kavanaugh of doing. Right. And yet somehow no one talked about that. So right. it's this, you know, it, 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 I think this is another reflection on this ontological truth thing or the loss of it yeah. in that – you can apply one standard to one side and a totally different standard to your guy. Right. Well, this, this is kind of what, where I was I Because was truth doesn't matter. What, what happens is, is the very thing they say everyone else is guilty of is always the thing that they're doing themselves. This is another one of those. This is related to truth, you know, the enactment of truth, if you will. Um, this is why obedience, truth and obedience go hand in hand for Christians. I mean, if you claim something you know, and then you undermine it by your enactment, <laughs> um, then you're a hypocrite. <laughs> um, and so we see that hypocrisy. But what we see is the adoption of truth as really the, the narrative of the powerful and or those who want power. And so we have now a utilitarian concept going is, you know, lies are good if they help keep power because keeping power keeps our narrative going and that allows for us to exploit others and keep power. And, and one of the things I think the, what, what has happened, you, you really see this, is the way in which the, the, the uh, let's, let's call it, you know, the political power class, or it, it's not just political. I mean, anyone who is, who is getting the advantages of power, both economically and politically, 
in society. The way in which you have that group play to marginalized voices and kids indoctrinated in that kind of uh, language to create a scapegoat, which is typically the, the middle class or the powerless, as though they're the powerful under symbols of things like white supremacy or whatever, whatever tag you're doing. And so what you have is the old kind of Marxist setup between the powerful crushing those who don't have powerful, but now you have a new scapegoat, which turns this group against this group rather than this group, because this group claims to be their voice and their ally. So it's a, it's a very insidious picture. But most people that are, are have a psychological grievance and who find this getting back at the symbol, the scapegoat, um, attractive, they're willing to throw off, you know, the listening required for truth to evaluate whether these claims are actually ground, you know, grounded, much less um, rational or anything else. Um, and so here we have this, this psychological enter the picture where, where basically you have one group triggering the other group to just, just act and act rashly against the scapegoat. And we've seen this throughout history. We've seen, we see it even in the New Testament, but we're really seeing it come back, I think, in the political arena. This is why you can have someone like Biden guilty of all these, these same things, yet if he's an ally, he goes out and he elects certain people with certain symbolic power, and he goes after the, the, uh, the, the labeled bad guy group. <laughs> um, he's yeah. okay. He's, he's yeah, a saint. The, the guy, the, you know, the sort of the classic uh, sort of uh, framework that comes to my mind when you describe this, Tom, is Caesar and, you know, the plebes, you know, yeah. against, yeah. you know, the patricians. Um, and, and what you have uh, is, you know, this this guy, I mean, um, well, it's demagoguery. Uh, yeah. And I remember when, uh, you know, uh, Robert Kennedy was accused of demagoguery and it was a big deal. Uh, yeah. I don't know if anyone's been accused of demagoguery in my 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 you know memory over the last twenty or more years. It used to be uh, a label that could get you uh, dismissed as being unfit. Today, yeah. I don't even know if people know what the word means. That's part of the problem. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Right. And they wouldn't even see why it's bad. I mean, now the only the only words that that you know that well, not the only, but but the the most damaging words are, are typically to be labeled anything that that the love the left loves labeling you with you're a racist you're a bigot you're a homophobe i mean this whole stretch of you you know and, and usually it's defined yeah what's fun though to see though maybe not fun maybe this is appalling but the the those uh pejorative terms those labels are losing their power yes uh they yeah yeah, yeah. Just think about uh, Tucker Carlson here recently in the big piece that was done in the New York Times cover story. He's yeah. laughing at them. Yeah. You, you know, he, he's, he's actually holding up the, the cop, a copy of the New York Times that is accusing him of being a white supremacist. And he's yeah. laughing. And everybody else yeah. is laughing, too. I'm laughing. You know, and the reason why we're all laughing is because this label no longer does what, you know, the people who coined the term wanted to do. It's just like water off your back now. I mean, if you're accused of being a white supremacist, basically it means, okay, uh, I believe in bourgeois values. Okay, great. <laughs> that makes me a white supremacist. Okay, good. Go for it. 
Yeah, well, like, the thing that I'm yeah, struck yeah. by is the connection between this and what Herbert Marcuse talked about, repressive tolerance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Repressive tolerance uh, is tolerating ideas from the left but not the right. Uh, tolerating speech from the left but not the right. Tolerating indoctrination from the left but not the right. Education. Violence. Right. Yes. Right. You know, I mean, he literally went as far as yeah. saying we should tolerate leftist violence and not, but not anything from the right. Uh, which, when you consider a billion dollars worth of damage or so done in Minneapolis right. versus January 6th, look at the reaction between the two. Yeah, and, and on this point, uh, Carl Truman came out with with a piece recently uh, in the online edition of First Things in which he noted this very thing. And within the Christian world, within Christian colleges, he was, I think, reflecting, yeah. I think it was on Baylor. I think Baylor has an LGBTQ, whatever it is, club that just got established. And ostensibly, you know, Baylor is still a Christian school and what, what have you. But uh, there was, all, there was uh, you know, a lot of buzz about things going on at Grove City as well. Uh, and what happened in Grove City was there was a, an, an attempt uh, yeah. to address problems coming from the left. And everybody, you know, well, a lot of Christian intellectuals uh, in other Christian colleges got worked up about that. But then uh, at Baylor, we have a situation in which uh, the reverse appears to be occurring. It's okay to, you know, repress, you know, conservative voices at a Christian school. uh, And nobody, uh, you know, is worked up about that including apparently people at places like Christianity Today and so forth. This is one of the reasons why a number of us have just gotten sick and tired of Christianity Today. I haven't read the, the rag in 20 years. <laughs> Anyways, but, yeah. but, but, but this yeah. is the point. I mean, these people yeah. uh, in the highest levels of the evangelical sort of power structure are hobnobbing with secular elites and, uh, you know, they go to the same dinner parties and they don't want to hurt any or offend anybody uh, from that world. But they're just fine with kicking the rest of us around. Anyway, I, I'm starting to get a little bit agitated. <laughs> well, but, <laughs> but, you know, that that is exactly what happens when you have a bunch of people who've been brought up in an educational system that's been heavily influenced by the new left. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. You know, you you. You know, nobody is going to become unpopular among the elites by bashing white evangelicals. Right. Um, including, including, including even if elites. you are a white evangelical. <laughs> right. Yeah. Including uh, elite white evangelicals bashing evangelicals. They, they won't, yeah. won't get in trouble for that. That's right. right. Yeah. And plus it's plus it's an easy again, it's an easy appeasement for for that kind of atonement system. Right. You have a bunch of, uh, of you know, uh, wealthy or or entered the real privileged class of of uh, of the powers that be, but there is this kind of sense in which, well, you know, I'm in this privileged class, and all these people down, you know, are are just trying to make ends meet, if not survive, and yet I claim to be a voice for them. Well, I really haven't done anything to change their life, so the best thing I can do is blame it all on Plumber. Edward over here, the white guy who drives his pickup truck and likes Trump because somehow he really has the power because he's a majority for somehow. And actually, you just see clearly that this is, you know, anyone who thinks about it very long realizes that there there is some sense in which I mean, I, you saw I saw recently the the lady uh, Jones for the 1619 project. She's making three hundred and thirty dollars a minute. 
to speak, you know, or $50,000 to speak, I mean, I mean, intellectually borderline illiterate material, you know, and, and, and to, you know, hot air, but it appeases the consciences by people paying that money to make them look like somehow they're atoning for their guilt of having being at a privileged institution, which has done nothing to change the lives. If anything, it's created more debt for people than anything else. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, their, their, their scam can only go but so far. And I think what you're seeing, this is why I'm saying you're seeing resistance begin to happen where a Tucker Carlson can come out and say, you know, you know that's just kind of funny. You know, um, it's something <laughs> that's completely not able to be backed up in any way. But I think this is the other thing is, is the loss of public criteria for being able to measure these things because it has been rejected because it's inconvenient for the powerful. So they create a czar to replace the public criteria for evaluating truth and facts. And so what used to be a kind of some kind of space, even though I think if you want to talk about who was really left out, it was evangelicals who were told basically to take their beliefs and keep them in private. You know, when, when is the repressed evangelical going to actually make those those beliefs public? You know, um, but I mean, that's, I think it's one of those those kind of things. Yeah, Tom, this is something that you you sort of alluded to before, but uh um, back when Chuck Colson was around at one of the uh, uh, events, I was on a panel and I made the comment that the first rule of political invective is to accuse your opponent of what you're doing yourself. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Chuck, Chuck looked rather startled and he thought for a second and he turned to the guy next to him and said, you know, he's right. <laughs> and I, you know coming from Chuck Colson I took that as a great compliment but it it's really sure. it, it's really what what happens I you, one of the things that I always look at is when actually either side uh accuses the other of doing it doing something I always start looking for okay are they doing it and you know what more often than not especially with the left they are yeah. Yeah. And it's it's something that's come up again and again in different places. It's one way, I think, to um, sort of preempt your opponent, uh, mm -hmm. accuse the opponent of the thing that you're guilty of yourself. It puts them on the defensive, puts you in a in a good light as the defender of you know truth and justice in the American way. Although you can't say American way anymore. Not even yeah. Superman is allowed to do that. But but you get you get my drift. And so one of the things that, you know, you see even in sort of interpersonal relationships, uh, say in marriage counseling, is uh, when a person leads with an accusation, it's a power move. It's a way to establish yourself as the authority figure in the conflict yeah. and to put the other party on the defensive. If you were to say something like, um, you know, I have my problems, too, and here are some things that I do that are wrong, but this is something that my wife or my husband does that has, has been difficult for me to live with. Well, that puts it in a whole different light because you're yeah. accusing yourself of some things as well. But when you just simply say that person is the problem, well, uh, everybody, you know, follows the, the line of your finger to that other person's face and, and, and they're all like, well, what are you going to say in defense? Uh, yeah. You know, so it completely you know, you know, you know, sort of redirects attention in a, in a, in a, in the direction away from yourself.
that kind of family practice began all the way back in the garden, you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. He did it, right. and she did it. She, she did it, and oh, the serpent did it. The serpent is kind of left there. The only one the serpent can claim is God. <laughs> it's it's actually worse than that because Adam is blaming God too. Yes. Right. Yeah, what does he right. say? Yeah. That yeah. woman that you gave me. Right. 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 Well, it's, yeah. it's worth remembering that one of the names for the devil is the accuser. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the word uh, that, you know, he's referred, you know, he, you know, that's often used as in reference to him is diabolical yeah. and diabolo is a marvelous word with a, with a, you know, a very, uh, a remarkable visual component, you know, dia through balo, you know, th- you know, throw. So an accu- an, an accusation is like a dart or an arrow yeah. that you use to pierce your opponent. Um, now apology is an, it's a fun word because apology literally means away words uh, you know, you've got the preposition and you've got the, you know, and, you know, lo, lo, logos. Uh, so uh, way words are the means by which you defend yourself. So an apology is a defense. It's not saying I'm sorry. It's saying I'm not guilty. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. there's just things to think about. Well, well, it's interesting because, I mean, you, you think of, uh, I think, you know, liberation theology and things like that, which, look, I, I can understand from wider biblical understandings of sin and its impacts all the way to the social, the hierarchical, the powerful, you know, the ordering of things. I can understand that as, you know, a lot of the liberation theologians wanted to make sure those things got addressed as well as someone's personal salvation. And sometimes when someone was so focused on their own that they ignored all these other things, those things can and did happen and do happen. But the flip side is the way in which they use the the accusatory um, and the accusation that if you are not aligned with our particular understanding of addressing this issue, which ignores a lot of what Scripture has to say about sanctification, about church relationships, about the church's witness, um, the church's uh, charity and those things. Um, but instead start to say, well, if you aren't for this Marxist vision or this kind of altered Marxist vision, you're guilty now of the very, you know, so now all of a sudden the atonement that you thought worked for you doesn't work for you anymore. The only way it will work for you is if you're an ally. And so you start to see this. And so, so of course, you know, um, there comes the guilt, there comes the need to atone, you know, assuage it, there comes a new kind of uh, s- social works, if you will, um, that that uh, places a new burden on on people. And, and I guess the motivation is guilt for them seems to work better than grace. I don't agree, but I think for the, that mindset, I think that that's very attractive as, as it was for the Pharisees. <clears throat> yeah, there's no atonement on the left, really. Um, yeah. You know, what you have on the left is uh, kind of you, you, you're just guilty and there's nothing you can do to sort of uh, sort of come out from beneath the the guilt that weighs you down. Uh, you have to uh, just in an ongoing way through the course of your life, just give over, you know, uh, things to the people who, uh, you know, hold you in contempt. And basically, uh, you know, what we see in the academy with many, many uh, uh, people in the, these administrations uh, that kind of um, go along with, you know, these trends, 
they're basically, you know, kind of uh, paying ransom money, I, as far as I can see, uh, yeah. to just kind of keep keep people from um, spending too much time, you know, looking at them critically. They're willing to yeah. sacrifice other people, yeah. willing to sacrifice professors, willing to sacrifice the truth, obviously, um, just to kind of hold on to power themselves. So there's a kind of weird, weird, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure how to put it, but there's it's 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 not an alliance really because each party hates the other's guts. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they, each party is afraid, uh, kind of you know, uh, divorce the other. So when we think about the the liberal elites, um, and then we think about you know these people who are leftists uh, using kind of new left categories and so forth, they really don't like each other very much. I, I've seen this up yeah. close, but they can't. Uh, sort of fully denounce the other because they got this weird kind of codependency. That's the term. They're codependent. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and, and interesting because it makes that the group that becomes the straw man and the one of easy to attack. It, 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 one of the things they know is it, that is a bit of a sturdier group that you don't want to basically make. I mean, you can make mad many times and not fear immediate repercussion, right? Because they have something to lose. Most people are, are have a family and have a house and they're working and building things. So they're not interested in burning the whole thing down. They're actually interested in making that good for anyone else with, you know, and, and freeing up, you know, limits on people to help them have a share in it. So it's a very different thing, but it's an easy group to target because they're not going to immediately go burn the whole thing down. They're not going to be the first ones running outside of the Supreme Court justices house. Right. Um, I mean, I understand a lot of those are college kids who, you know, their degrees have, you know, have not given them much more than a barrister at Starbucks. But, you know, <laughs> you know, they've got to be mad at somebody. So right now it's it's the Supreme Court. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other that's a topic for a whole other show. But yeah, it's a very I think you, I think you're right. we got a lot of a lot of young people with too much time in their hands. Um, so I guess, you know, where, where my mind goes with this, Tom, is what do we do about all this stuff? You know, we we, we have a podcast that. You know, we're, yeah. I guess we're doing our part, but, yeah. Yeah. you know, and you're writing a book and <laughs> what, yeah, well, what, what else can things, we do? Well, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking I heard uh, I was listening to some interview not long ago. Rod Dreher did a little book on, you know, live not by lies. And I think he addressed some some kind of uh, some interesting things that I don't agree with all of it. But I, I think there is some substance and wisdom in, in, in his approach. But I want to come at it maybe at a, a different angle that would help you know, complement that kind of work. Um, but one, one thing I did pick up from, from different figures, I mean, even reading Truman's more recent work, is, is the recognition that, uh, you know, the kind of conditions are such that we're not in a situation where, you know, just arguing a better ontology or epistemology, as important as that is, is going to be embraced by those that hate you, you know. Um, matter of fact, anything we do or say right now is not going to be embraced by those who deliberately hate you. We're not dealing with a world that has not yet, well, some cases not heard the gospel yet, but we're dealing with a post-Christian society, which is something that has a certain conception of Christianity, and it is not a good one. So you are in, increasingly, as a Christian that aligns with classic Christianity, a threat and someone to be loathed, if not hated. So being truthful, speaking truth, and going about your business, reordering things in light of the biblical ontology, metaphysic, theological vision, 
That's what we need to be committed to as a people of God. But we must realize it's going to be cost, more costly than it has been for us, I think, in the West. I mean, it has already been costly for, for, for other people. But speaking the truth, I think, um, especially the dignity of human life. I mean, we're seeing that is now, you, you know, churches being invaded and bombs going off. Um, it's going to be costly. So one thing I think we can do is, is I think this is Dreher's point, is we can't shy away from that aspect. We can't, because of these pressures, simply become people that get along peacefully or think we're going to influence by taming back our truth claims and speaking the truth. Um, you know, I'd like to reflect on that a little bit, Tom, because <laughs> I think this is tremendously important. One of the things that I think... Um, we need to deal with, particularly when it comes to lay leadership in the evangelical world, is this very matter. Yeah, when I was yeah. on, on, you know, when I lived on Cape Cod, I wrote, I wrote uh, something for the Cape Cod Times uh, in which I denounced gay marriage. Of course, at that point, uh, you know, it had not been, you know, uh, even legalized in the state of Massachusetts. But a letter writing campaign was conducted against me and every day for a month there were was one or two there were one or two letters that were published attacking me and uh i went to my board at my church and i and i said are you ready for a picket line waiting for us when we arrive on sunday morning to worship uh and i could see their eyes just pop open I can still see it in my mind's eye, in my memory. Yeah. They were not ready for that. They, they, they really did believe that you know being involved in the church would make them upstanding people in the eyes of everyone, not yeah. just the people within the church. Yeah. Um, and until uh, the rank and file of the church accept the new reality, yeah. they're not going to be ready. They're not. Yeah. They have not counted the cost. One of the things I'm really glad uh, uh, for uh, is uh, the church I currently serve has counted the cost. Yeah. Uh, the people that I currently pastor uh, really, I think, uh, would be able to handle that kind of situation that I described. But uh, not every church that I've, I've served in the past. And in fact, I, I don't think that I think maybe this may be the first church that uh, yeah. I've served that could live with the kind of opprobrium that I'm talking about right now. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, and, and again, there, there are, you know, I mean, I, there are witnesses to, to, you know, Christians and those aligning with classic Christianity. I mean, you think of John Paul in the planting of crosses, right. In, in, in communism, the threat of death um, for speaking, at least in some, some kind of gestural way, the truth that when it was being crushed in all sides, um, I think it was Coulson who who tells that story. Actually, uh, Chuck Coulson's one of the ones who tells that story very well. Um, and but you see, you you know, I mean, think, think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, here is a person who increasingly fathomed the significance of classical Christianity, even though he comes from it from a highly elite, educated, liberal family, and he starts to consider the cost in one of his famous books, you know, the cost of discipleship, where he said, calling people to come follow Jesus um, is a bid to come die, right? Well, it's death to self. And there is, I think, that costliness that is going to be have, have to be measured by Christians um, increasingly as, as they are labeled a, a threat to 
the powers, you know, those that have powers. I'm sure there are a lot of people that are hoping, you know, a, a good election or two will just change all of that. And it may temporarily. It's not going to change it long term, though, because um, th- th- something else is required, <laughs> um, you know, in, in terms of I mean, I'm, I'm root, root, from the roots, you know, um, uh, we're talking on just about every, every level. I mean, even if you think about the way in which Christianity advances in to the West, it wasn't strictly because of people going out and making disciples. It was actually, whether you believe the conversion was true or not of, of Constantine, but it was that that established a different relationship, that established a way of, of uh, creating a certain kind of cultural consensus, which has, you know, had kind of imperfect bonds with with imperial power right so so you know the, the you know I, i'd like to reflect on i'd like to reflect yeah. on that just briefly because this is something that you've talked about glenn when we've talked about um you know uh machiavelli uh you know and uh you know his uh uh you know his diagnosis as you presented that you know the a republic is uh, is what he really would like to have seen, but uh, he, he more or less noted that the population uh, that he was addressing did not possess the virtue that was required in order for a republic to be, you know, feasible. Therefore, we needed a, he, he said he, he needed a, or he recommended kind of a strong man, right, who would come in and try to get order. And that reminds me a little bit of uh, Caesar Augustus. Yeah. You know, Augustus came into a chaotic situation and Augustus uh, imposed certain policies that were very unpopular. His family policies, which uh, uh, were intended to strengthen the households in in the emperor, believe it or not, were tremendously unpopular with the elites Hmm. Um, because he was saying, you can't do the things you want to (laughs) do. We need you to set an example for the rest of of our of our, you know. Uh, civilization, we, you know, it's enough of this sort of self-indulgence nonsense. Yeah, uh, he anyway, would have. Anyway. He would have actually um, very. He went two thirds of the way to cross politic. <laughs> Basically, he told the nobility, "If you're single, get married. If you're married, have children." Right. I mean, yeah. and that was literally what he did. Now, it would have been nice if he took the third step. If you have children, baptize them. But you know, you can't have everything. <laughs> That's right. But that, but, that, yeah, that may be what we need right now is somebody like that. Well, but the thing is, Augustine, uh, Augustus failed. True. Yeah. He did not, you know, the efforts that he put in did not create the kind of virtuous society that he would have liked to have seen and that would have been necessary, actually, for the Republic to continue. Now, the yeah. Republic was in bad shape. Otherwise, it would never have fallen the way it did. But... Um, it's a tribute, actually, to Roman institutions that Rome survived as long as it did. Um, and what, that's one of the points Machiavelli makes, that what he wants the prince to do is to revitalize institutions in the society because it is through the institutions, according to Machiavelli, that virtue is um, is learned. So... He was he advocated a prince to revitalize institutions to create a virtuous citizenry so that you could turn back to a republic. Well, it and and I think that I mean a lot, you know, in a micro kind of way, um, when Chris asked what can we do now, there is something of a sense that we we as Christians committed to truth 
can carry out our own lives and institutions that way as a a for well well creating a groundwork from which communities of truth telling communities of character um, it, and and those that are shining the light in darkness are able to to carry out their work but also they're formative communities in the sense that discipleship starting at home and with the family and with the children, spilling over into the way we educate, spilling over into the way in which we educate people to be of the truth, to speak the truth, to to turn away from lies and evil, and to also start to equip with more depth the 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 ontological and medical meta, metaphysical issues, which we have to, we can't shy away from. This is where the battle is taking place. I mean, you you, you see a figure like uh, I can't think of his name. He he's kind of a, a humorous character. Um, the guy who wrote the little book on I something about being a walrus right now to to kind of oh, go yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah Matt Walsh, Walsh. Matt Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he but he he is tapping on the the metaphysical question and ontological question um, and 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 the way in which language and identity relate to that um, in a way that uh, I don't even I don't even know how how much he realizes he's he's hitting he's hitting one of the sacred points at which the church has been missing the mark for a long time. And it's not easy to do. Well, in fact, if, yeah. Yeah. In fact, he was, he was, um, if I remember canceled at a Catholic university, yeah. um, he went to, to, to speak to a student group and was canceled, was not permitted to do so. So he held an event, you know, off campus. I don't remember the details. I can't tell you this, to, to what school it was, but he made the connection Basically, he said, I think I think he's a practicing Catholic, yeah. but I, essentially he's, he said, you know, I'm not permitted to promote, you know, Catholic moral doctrine at this Catholic school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's happened. It's a, and, and I know somewhat behind the scenes that there are a lot of a lot of funding going on to promoting the LGBT, you know, leftist interpretation um, uh, in, in Catholic schools is as well, all the way down to elementary. So yeah, it's this, the inroads again, they've made their way into the institutions. They've carried out the fulfillment of, of their leaders. Um, and we've basically made our way out of the institutions. Um, and I do think it was a loss of nerve on one end and, and a belief that, um, if we're silent about certain things, will be allowed to still hang around. Uh, and eventually we learned that we were pushed out or will be pushed out uh, of the playground. Um, and well, I, th- I, think t- I think too, Tom, there was also a kind of a naive faith in uh, sort of a one-to-one uh, sort of uh, or kind of an approach to evangelism. Let's just win the hearts of people. Yeah. Uh, and a kind of a blithe indifference, if not even contempt for institutions within yeah. the evangelical world. Yeah. But yeah. it's not just evangelicals. Yeah. It's it's sort of the nature of conservatism not to be um, uh, not to be uh, as forward and aggressive in promoting its interests as the leftists. I mean, you know, the very nature of conservatism it doesn't lend itself to that. And I think that I think that that our failure to realize what was going on was certainly important. Um, the old liberals that we disagreed with were honorable and would let us have our say and, and so on. But we didn't realize where things were heading. Um, 
you know, in a way it's understandable. But on the other hand, we are now in a situation where we're caught in a very, frankly, in a very bad place. Um, because what we have to do is begin having the kind of aggressive outreach, retaking institutions and things like that, that the left has been so successful at for the past 60 years. Yeah, yeah, and I've dealt personally on a firsthand basis with the inertia uh, that you described there, Glenn, with regard to conservatives. And a lot of these are, you know, folk. A lot of these folks are great, you know, salt of the earth people, and uh, but they're naive, uh, and they tend to uh, think that if we just adhere to sort of procedural rules, that everything will work out right. Uh, and they they enter into uh, you know important. Uh, meetings without having done the preliminary work that's required to make the best case, uh, to uh, form alliances, to um, you know uh, identify the weaknesses of their of their adversaries, uh, they just expect everything to just kind of work out. Um, and if you try to do any of the things that I just described, they look at you like you're a troublemaker. You know, I, I'm, you know, you just say, "Hey, I'm just trying to make sure that you, you we're we're ready for this next meeting that's coming up. We need to have a plan here, guys." We know what they're going to do. What what are we going to do? And 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 a lot of uh, a lot of these uh, conservative guys who are really, like I said, good salt of the earth folks. You know, I would I would certainly trust them to watch my dog, but I don't I don't trust them to defend the institutions. Yeah, yeah. You know, at some point, I I know um, Rod Dreher likes Solzhenitsyn, the live not by lies thing. I am actually, uh, possibly because I've got some check in me, I'm a fan of uh, Václav Havel. Um, He wrote a marvelous essay um, called The Power of the Powerless, in which he made essentially the same point Dreher is making, what we need to be doing. He said, look... You know, the, he wrote this under communism in, in Prague. And he says, you know, if the state tells you you have to put a sign in your shop that says workers of the world unite, most shopkeepers will simply do it because everybody else is doing it and it'll avoid trouble. That is what you cannot do. Yeah. What you must do is say, I do not believe this. This is a load of propaganda. It's a load of nonsense. It's a lie and refuse to put the sign up. That's the only way things change. Yeah, and we've had the same phenomenon here. In case people think, oh, that only happens in communist countries, we had that phenomenon happen here in Portland. Well, I'm not in you know, Oregon well, right now, well, talking about Portland on the other side. I thought you were saying it doesn't only happen in communist countries. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But you get what I'm getting at. Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ, whatever flags, you know, all the kind of things, all that stuff that you have to put in your store window to say, I'm a I'm a I'm a true believer. You know, please don't burn my business down, uh, yeah. you know, doesn't prevent your business from getting burnt down, by the way. But. Uh, that's what's going on. It's a lot. A lot of it is just simply, I guess, squishy. Uh, I just want to get along people who are going along with things, but deep down have some reservations. But they don't have anything else, like in the way of like principled, you know, courage <laughs> yeah. to to stand up for what they what they believe. They just they just want people to leave them alone, and they don't want to cause any trouble. But the trouble comes to them anyway. Yeah. 
Well, and it's, you know, and again, it is that, that, you know, the madness of these mobs that, you know, on the one hand, you have a whole, you know, generation now of people deceived. Um, They've been lied to. Um, and, and, and they don't, they're not really a lot of these students getting out of unit. They don't really know an alternative. Um, and, and then on the other hand, that there's this, you know, rash judgments, um, anything that even has a hint of what would trigger them triggers them. And so they don't even look at, it. I mean, I, I'm hearing stuff, you know, I, I heard stuff, you know, well, I know another show with the, with the recent Supreme court, um, leak. Um, but the thing is people automatically start this, you know, the slippery slope that they denied would happen on the, on the other issue. Right. Oh, well, if this can happen, then all of these other things are going to happen. <laughs> and then now, that beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And I, that's right. And then I did, I heard, I mean, somebody working, you know, that, that I know who, who, you know, liberal Christianity. She's a, she's a partaker of, and she just apes that topic talking point, um, without any, any thought, Oh, this is what's happening in, in hysteria. And then automatically wants to ally so that she doesn't get looked at as though she's a quote unquote against these things. And right. it is just amazing how, how rash and uncritical. I mean, this person's not not you know they're in their sixties now. You know, so I mean, this is not somebody who wasn't taught differently. You know, this is very different than the deceived, um, you know, twenty five year old. Whenever I see that slippery slope presented, I almost always want to reply from your lips to God's ear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. Um, and, and so I think, you know, kind of turn things towards, uh, uh, you know, I know we're going to be wrapping up soon, but I, I think it's always worth pondering um, the importance of truth, truth telling and ontological truth and the way in which truth and falsehoods um, serve power interests and sinful, uh, you know, aims at dominion. And, uh, and I think um, we have to be very cautious as a distinct people of the truth, to not be caught up in the deception. I mean, that's one thing, trying to be as informed and knowledgeable about things in light of the truth um, and read in, through the lens of, of Scripture, um, but not be the kind of people that are, are uh, triggered by these rash judgments. Um, one of the things I think missing, and it's a good place to begin, is learning to listen even to our enemies, for that matter, because this is something that isn't going on. And this is an alternative practice that we can start to perfect as people of God is listening, because no matter how much I'd love to think that I have everything to know and say about truth, beauty, goodness, Christ, the church, I don't. There is a body and that body is gifted. It's not that everyone has the same, you know, we, we don't look at it critically, but the fact is, is that we're not listening and therefore conversation is not happening and monologue and then is, is able to, to kind of dominate. I'll kind of leave my thought there. Yeah, I think, Tom, that's a great, great spot to, to, to you know, begin to wrap things up with. I, I think truth for truth's sake was an ideal yeah. that we all know was difficult to, you know, sort of uh, achieve or uh, embody. Uh, but it was an ideal, and it was something that we encouraged each other to pursue, uh, knowing that we all fell short. 
now I'm not even sure that there's an ideal. I just think that there's just simply what works for me. And if, if something works for you and it puts me at a, at a disadvantage, it's bad. That's kind of where, where we are now. But it's not the first time that this has occurred. I mean, this is what, you know, we see again and again throughout the course of human history, you know, uh, things kind of decaying and getting to to this point. You can think of, you know, the sophist. We can think of, you know, yeah. Pilate's words, you know, when he's yeah. uh, responding to Christ and, you know, his rhetorical question, what is truth, which is intended to undermine the very confidence that we can, you know, the, the, the conviction that we can know the truth. Um, Anyway, so in a way, it's old news. Anything you wanted to say, uh, Glenn? Yeah, I'm kind of struck. I'm, I'm currently reading Tom Howard's book, Dominion. And okay. uh, it, 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 it's a fast read. I mean, it, you know, for a 600-page book, it goes pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm struck by is his argument on the impact of Protestantism on so many different areas of life. <clears throat> Marxism would be one of these. You know, and actually going back to ancient Christian ideals that the weak have intrinsic value, um, which is really at the root of critical theory and what the left is doing and so on. But the other part of it that I'm, I'm sort of thinking about right now is within the reform tradition, the motto was semper reformanda, always reforming. And the idea being that the church is always going to need to be reforming because it's never going to be perfect in this world. It's always going to be improving. It's always going to be slipping back and needing to rediscover things or, or emphasize things in a different way and so on. This is just part of the process of being in the church. The progressives, it seems to me, have picked up a kind of semper reformanda, except their semper reformanda is built around the rejection of there being any fixed truth. Yeah. Which means that everything is in a constant state of flux, and we will never be able to resolve the issues. Because no matter what you do, eventually there's, there, there will come up another issue. There'll be another oppressed group. There'll be another something. And so it, it, there's no rest point. The Marxists at least had an idea that you would reach a utopia. There is no rest point in modern progressivism because of this rejection of, of any kind of notion of ontological truth. Which I suppose means that um, we need to reject what they're promoting if we're going to be able to find rest. Anyway, well, why don't we wrap up on that point? <laughs> anyway, thanks, thanks for the topic, Tom. It was a good one. And yeah, we man. do appreciate your interest in the Theology Pugcast. Uh, we have people who support us. Uh, and do so on a monthly basis financially. Uh, people do that through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Club. Uh, people do that in other ways, and we're very grateful for those gifts. They really do keep the show going. And uh, we're also grateful for all the folks who give us nice reviews on you know, various po you know, podcasting platforms. All that is great. We're, uh, as we said many times, astonished at how the show has grown. Uh, over the years and we're grateful uh, for that too thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end of the podcast so that we could thank you <laughs> anyway we need to get going so uh uh bye-bye until next time bye bye now